When most people talk about knowing their ABCs, they're referencing the alphabet. But here at Animal Behavior Conversations, the podcast of the ABMA, we're talking about the ABCs of behavior. Each week, we'll discuss a topic in the world of animal training and break down the science of behavior change. One of the great things about behavior and training is that it relates to animals of every kind. So whether you're training a lion or a tiger or a bear, oh my, or your pet at home, this podcast is for you. So without further ado, let's talk some training. Hello and welcome to Animal Behavior Conversations, the podcast of the ABMA. Today we are talking about baiting with special guest Jake Belair. This podcast is presented by the ABMA or the Animal Behavior Management Alliance, which is a not-for-profit organization with a membership comprised of animal care professionals and other individuals interested in enhancing animal care through training and enrichment. The ABMA continually strives to advance intentional and enlightened behavior management through operant conditioning to improve the lives and welfare of all animals. If you'd like to learn more or become a member of the ABMA, visit us at our website at theabma.org. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. I'm your host, Shane, and I'm a current ABMA board member and self-proclaimed behavior nerd. For anyone joining us again on the podcast, we're so excited to have you back and to continue to talk about behavior. The goal of this podcast is to implement one of the goals of the ABMA, which is to continue the spread of knowledge and sharing throughout the animal care field. Each episode, we will break down one topic that involves the science of behavior change in animal training. We want to provide a resource for newer trainers to learn and for experienced trainers to be refreshed. Even though the content that you hear in this podcast reflects the views of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views of the ABMA or the board of directors, We think that the diversity of subjects and viewpoints represented by animal care professionals from around the world is one of the strengths of this organization. Some things you agree with and others may challenge your perceptions and ideas, but we encourage you to listen to all that you hear with an open mind because you might be surprised by what you learn. Over the last few episodes, we've been talking through some of the techniques that we can implement to train novel behaviors, and we're going to continue forward with that theme in this episode because our topic is baiting or luring. And help me talk about that. It's Jake Belair. Thanks for joining me today, Jake. Hi, Shane. Thanks for having me. So excited to have you on, Jake. Jake and I know each other through a couple of very interesting avenues. We both worked at the Animal Encounters Village at the Columbus Zoo and Aquarium, but never together. So we had a lot of similar contexts. And then also currently we are both on the board of directors for the ABMA. Jake is an awesome person, human all around. So excited to have you on, Jake. Thank you. Thank you. I love our like weird relationship for a couple of years where we like knew each other, but didn't know each other. And now it's like, I know you. So I'm, I'm really glad to be here and chatting with you. Yeah, it was really weird. We did have this like texting relationship because we had so many different interconnecting <laughs> pieces of our life and people. So, and now we, we officially know each other. Yeah. It's really cool. But anyways, I gave a little bit of a tease, but can you tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself and your journey through the animal care and training field? Yeah. So I, I always knew that I wanted to work with the animals and I think that's like pretty common among like zoo folk, but I like started volunteering at my local zoo, the Akron Zoo, when I was 13 in the education department. And I was like there for a while, uh, worked up into a seasonal job and then some internships after that while I was in college. And that's also when I went down to the Columbus Zoo and worked there for a couple seasons 
did some work at some rehab centers and some nature centers and a summer out in California working for an awesome rescue zoo out there. And now I've been at the Nashville Zoo in Nashville, Tennessee for the last eight years. And I'm currently the uh, one of the lead ambassador animal trainers here. So I help care for a group of about 60 species of ambassador animals, everything from cockroaches to clouded leopards. And that's really my my jam is working with ambassadors. I love the diversity of species, the diversity of experiences that we have on a daily basis and the ability to connect people to wildlife in a very tangible way, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I love it. And I, we do quite a bit of training as you well know, because our ambassadors, while they're typically chosen as species to be fairly accustomed to being around people or easily accustomed to being around people. We also work with a handful of species that generally are never around people or take a lot more work to get them used to that and comfortable with that and wanting to participate in that. And that's really what I love to, to work on. And if you are into social media, Nashville Zoo does post a lot of really cool videos on their social media and you can see jake his co-workers both human and animals doing some really cool stuff they got a pretty fun ambassador animal show there as well that i've seen twice but jake of course has never been working when i've been there the two times i visited the zoo but it's okay it's okay <laughs> just keeping the mystery alive yeah. yes we had to keep it going somehow but also speaking of social media i do want to give jake a shout out because he helps to run the ABMA social media channels. And he has been really gracious with me as I send him the information to be posted about the podcast, generally the night before at like nine o'clock at night. So thank you, Jake, for doing all that. Listen, I need something to post and this is free content for me. So I will never complain. <laughs> I love it. Perfect. And Jake, you also have another role currently in the ABMA. You're the first VP and that means that you are helping to run our conference next year in 2024. Can you, I know we're early, but can you give everyone a little bit of a rundown, a tease of what the conference is going to look like, where it's going to be at, all that good stuff? Yeah, so we're hosting here in Nashville, which I'm super excited about. It's in April of 2024, because that's the year that it's going to be next year, which is crazy. My good friend Cam down here and I are really working a lot on some of the plans. We're hoping to have some really cool folks come out and really explore the science of behavior. So in my experience, I haven't had a ton of professional opportunities to learn from behavior experts and really talk about the science of behavior outside of kind of the practical realm or the kind of more relaxed kind of chats about it. And that's, you know, one of the things I love about your podcast, Shane, is you really touch on all of the different aspects of behavior. And um, so I think this conference is going to be super cool. I am excited to have people come to Nashville, see this amazing zoo that we have here. You know, the Nashville Zoo in its current location is only about 25 years old. And so all of the habitats are brand spanking new. They all look like what my image and of I think a lot of folks image of a modern zoo should look like and we've got some new habitats opening up and so I think it's a, a really wonderful time to see our little zoo that's growing exponentially and really have a good time here in Music City. Yes music and behavior what could what could be more what could be better right? Uh, exactly. 
Yeah, I think that to double down on that, Nashville is beautiful. I love just there's giant bamboo forests everywhere. It feels like throughout the zoo, which is really (laughs) cool. And my personal favorite part, though, is the guinea pig village. I mean, it is a like people sleep on this habitat. And then when they actually come and see the stunning exhibit with running water with the bridge, with these little huts and 60 little guinea pigs all running around and doing stuff. It is so cool. It it's is so really cool. cool. And the the messaging is awesome as well. But I have to tell you, Jake, when you said when people sleep on the habitat, I was like, are we about to get a juicy story on the podcast? <laughs> no, listen, I will tell you, I heard through the grapevine a couple months ago that a guest brought a guinea pig and dropped it off in the habitat. Oh, no. And we know because some other guests tattled and we're like, we saw this person literally pull a guinea pig out of a backpack and drop it off amongst our herd. Um, please don't do that, folks, when you go to zoos. Please do not bring or take animals with you. Um, but kind of, you know, fun story. There we go. We got we got all the, the uh-huh. juicy tea on the uh-huh. animal behavior conversation. Love it. Yeah. And I mean, it was out PSA. in the open. Yeah, yeah, a good PSA. It was out in the open. It's not like a secret. People, they did it in broad daylight. Okay. <laughs> well, I never would have guessed that this is where we would be at at this point in the podcast, but I love it. This is why I love part of this, the, the <laughs> awesome conversations. But coming back to it, 2024 conference is going to be amazing. Jake and his team are doing some really awesome stuff. And keep your eyes out on Navy MA channels. As it gets closer to the fall, we'll start ramping up submissions, abstracts, how you can help, all those kind of things, some more information, and it is going to be an awesome time. We look forward to hopefully seeing all of you joining us in Nashville, Tennessee. But let's get going into today's episode, which is baiting, which is defined as the technique of adding partial access to a reinforcer, as in visual, olfactory, etc., as an antecedent stimulus to guide the animal towards a specific location or position. Now, one of the interesting things about baiting is there's not a ton of it in the science. In the literature, it's not talked a ton about. As we go through this episode, you'll probably be like, yeah, that I've seen that definitely done with a dog, cat, etc. So we're going to go through this episode and we're going to talk about it. The definition I had, I altered it some. It's the ABMA's one, and Justin helped write it, but when he looked it over, he was like, this definition isn't isn't right, because initially it said, like, we changed it a little bit, so see if you agree with that. Yeah. So, like, initially it just was, the reinforcer was in the antecedent stimulus, and he said it's not technically correct, because a reinforcer can only be a quote-unquote reinforcer if it is a consequence. Like, it has to follow a behavior. Right. Yeah. And like a lot of definitions <laughs> use, yeah, right. So it's this whole thing. And uh, a lot of definitions use food as their example. But I think ABMA, we didn't want to say food because you could bait using tactile, using other like Boys. shelter, like you yeah. can use a ton of other stuff. So I think that's why they, we said reinforcer. So then we added, we changed it to partial access, as in like you visually see it. Because then, like, when they do the behavior, which is getting to you, then they are technically receiving it. And then you could call it a reinforcer because yeah. they, they've done the behavior of getting to you. But it's also because they have visual or some kind of 
partial access to it and then the bait is getting full access i don't know this is whole yeah, it's thing like, it's so uh, i feel like a lot of behavior stuff is like this where it's kind of like well uh, i feel like it needs to be like t- access to a potential reinforcer you know like something that's potentially reinforcing but we can't say that it's reinforcing yet exactly that's what we reinforced. Talk- <laughs> it's funny because i texted him i said could i say the technique of adding a re- something that ha- was a reinforcer in the past right like right like because the whole thing is like you're giving you're showing them something that they want right that's yes. what it comes down to but in the science we don't say like right we don't say that yeah we don't say that but it, i feel like that's part of the like accessibility thing with behavior is like it if you give this to someone who's a novice trainer, even like me, who I can, what I consider like a fairly experienced trainer, like this is still confusing, you know, yes. like it's still like uh, a lot of gray areas. So it's like, honestly, it, it's much more clear if we say, you know, the technique of putting something that the animal wants in a very obvious location, using that to get the animal to go to that location. I love it. And I feel like, Honestly, this might find a play, find its way into the podcast. I lo- like. <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll see how it goes, but I, I actually think this discussion has a place in that because there are a lot of people that, if you're listening and you are thinking these things, like that's the purpose of what we hope the purpose of this resource is, is that people can come to find this technical science, but also have a practical application it's why almost every single episode starts with me saying like here's a definition whoever the guest is jake can you explain what this means in Uh practice because that's what we want to get understanding of so cool we started the podcast without actually starting the podcast i love it i love it (laughs) cool all right well we'll move from there and like i said i'll see what that sounds like but i think at least part of that finds i has a place in this discussion because it is important. It's what we're doing. We're luring them using something they want. Basically. So, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Because we do want to kind of point out a couple of things. One, baiting often should not be our first go-to technique when training a novel behavior. We'll get into that later. But also, two, baiting is one of the tools in a trainer's toolkit, and it definitely has its applications, which we'll also get into later. So, we're going to dive into both of those, but to start, Jake, can you break down a little bit more about what that definition of baiting means and what that looks like in practice? Yeah, sure thing. So uh, I have a couple examples that I like thought about, and I'm sure you do too, Shane, just so we can like kind of paint a picture for folks. Baiting in practice for me often will look like the beginning of a behavior chain or like a, the beginning of a one behavior And I'll use it as a means to lure an animal to a certain location, whether that be inside a crate, whether that be on the other side of a habitat, whether that is outside or like in an outdoor shift and I'm indoors. And, you know, practically that'll look like, you know, we have a green RSRI that we work with and we will often start like new trainers with him when they're still building up their reinforcement history. We may bait his crate for the first couple of times that he is crating for them because they don't have that reinforcement history with him um, so that he will start building that with him. And and I'll, you know, I can't say I'll preface it because I'm saying this after the fact, but like, like Shane mentioned, like, this is not like a super scientific practice. 
I can't say necessarily that it works all the time or that it's like the most useful thing. We certainly know that baiting is not something that we want to rely on long term. Um, another kind of like example of baiting in some kind of regard is if you have, say, a clotted leopard that you're trying to work on ultrasounds with and you're trying to do it in a voluntary way. We work free contact with a lot of our clotted leopards at the Nashville Zoo. So one way that I've seen baiting be used is basically just luring a cat up into a position where it's standing with its paws on the mesh and it's getting continuously reinforced while standing in that position. But the behavior is not trained in that the cat knows that when it's cued up by something other than food being held, it needs to go up and put its paws on the mesh. The food being placed up high where the cat then needs to put its paws on the mesh to be able to reach the food is kind of the way that that behavior sometimes looks. And I don't think necessarily that that's like a bad thing. I'm certainly not saying that, but there is the argument then of like, is this an actual trained behavior or is this a behavior that we're relying on the fact that the food, which is a primary reinforcer for this cat, is the driving motivation for the cat reaching up, holding where it is. So this is where you kind of run into issues with baiting is this is the animal deciding to move in this direction, into the crate, into this position, because you're holding that food there. And some of the potential issues there is like the, the animal may not do it for other food items or the animal may look and see, oh, well, they're using ground meat today instead of whole prey. I'm not doing this. And that's the animal's choice and their prerogative, but that's you know a pitfall of using baiting. And if the animal can see that food item in your hand and you don't give the animal the food, you can end up with kind of a dangerous situation there too. Because in your head, you're like, oh no, you're getting the food if you do this particular thing. But the animal doesn't know the behavior. The animal knows come to the food. And if you're not quick at hiding it or not offering it, et cetera, that's going to be really confusing to the learner and not really helpful to the entire situation. I, again, like with the same, on the same line of thinking, if you start with a handful of meat, well, maybe the animal will do that consistently. Maybe they'll do it one time and then they don't do it. And then you pull out two handfuls of meat. Where does that end? The animal then can learn, oh, well, if I sit here and watch him, he will start pulling out more and more and more and more to offer me. And that's, you know, a pitfall in a lot of our training when you're using baiting, even in a fully established behavior. Say you have a bird up in a tree and you're offering the cue, you're offering the cue, you offer the cue 20 times and birds like not having it. Very happy to sit up in a tree, plenty of competing reinforcers. And you're like, well, I'm going to show them this piece of food and hope that that gets them down. Sometimes it works great. I'm not gonna lie. I've done it. I'll do it again. Like I'm not, not, <laughs> not afraid of that. However, you have to be aware that that can have really not fun consequences for you down the road because that bird may be like, well, now I'm real happy up in the tree because I know the longer I stay up here, the more food this fool on the ground is going to offer me, you know? And again, this is not to like villainize baiting. I don't think that it's like a four letter word that we should 
avoid at all costs. Just like you mentioned at the beginning, Shane, baiting is a powerful tool that we can have in our belt, but it really should be used just as that is a tool and not a permanent strategy, right? Yes, I love all that. But I do have to tell you, baiting is a seven letter word, not a four letter word, Jake. Ah, 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 Good point. Fair point. Sorry, had to throw that in there. But (laughs) I think you just did a very great job of discussing a lot of those challenges that could come from baiting. And a couple of things that you said that I wrote notes on at the beginning, you said that baiting generally, and we're going to get into this, we have a whole part of our episode dedicated to talking about how that's, this is the beginning of a behavior. We're going to be using it as a tool to start something, but then quickly we're going to change that because of all the things that Jake just said that could happen. So that's exactly why like we're going to not want to sit on that. And then another thing that we wanted Jake and I to point out while we talk about this podcast is that Jake said the animal doesn't know the behavior. You even mentioned us as trainers, we in our head are like, okay, if this bird climbs across this perch up to this tall one, they're going to get the food. But the bird doesn't know that because we haven't had any learning history. We're not shaping anything. We're not giving them any communication other than, hey, look at this food item. Look at this, whatever this potential thing is, follow it. And so if the bird is like, I don't know, that tall perch is a little bit high to get that whatever you have. That is where you could get that frustration, the confusion, all those things, because the animal doesn't know. The animal is really just focused on following something that it wants versus us being able to give them dialogue on how they are going to receive that item. So after all of that discussion, Jake, what are some other techniques that we should consider before implementing baiting as a strategy? Yeah, so if we go back, Shane, to like the example of the clouded leopard ultrasounds, where you're using the visual food cue to get the cat to stand up, some other techniques might be using target training. So you target train the cat or train the cat to target its nose or its paw to the target, and you utilize that to shape or approximate up into a position where it's standing that you could do ultrasounds more easily. Using shaping and capturing techniques to build behavior really helps the learner, and it helps the trainer too, I think, see the progress, but it helps the learner actually learn as opposed to just doing something and getting food out of it or any other reinforcer. I use food a lot as an example because I I think that that is one of the primary ways that people use baiting techniques. But I know that I have, and I know other people use the sun or use toys or use any number of other reinforcers for animals. One thing I'm not going to really talk about it, I just want to point it out because I thought it was a really great way to think about it is you said that these other strategies and techniques helps the learner actually learn. Boom. Mic drop podcast over. Thanks Jake. (laughs) Right. I I really like that. So that was really cool. But after all this discussion that we've had so far, we talked about earlier, we also do want to talk about baiting as a strategy because it is something that is in our toolkit. It's something that 
we can use, you'll probably see used, you may use at some point. And there are instances where baiting is an effective tool if used properly. So Jake, can you give us some examples of what those situations might look like? Yeah, so I have two for you, Shane, and I'm curious your thoughts on them. The first, you know, well, we have my a first line. is because we have a template and you say you have a hornbill in your first example. So I'm all on board already. So, <laughs> well, the good news is both examples are hornbills. So <laughs> I'm I, even more excited. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. So we have a rhinoceros hornbill currently that we work with in our uh, ambassador animal department. We have seven, eight, nine folks who work in on this bird. And I think the reality for a lot of ambassador animal people is we don't have the luxury of saying, okay, only two people are working with this animal until this behavior is completely established. And certainly for me, we do not have the luxury to say, okay, we have to pull this animal from shows because we had a breakdown in behavior or miscommunication from trainer to learner. And so he can't be in shows for a couple of weeks while we kind of build up our confidence back together. The show must go on and like it or not, that is the reality that I'm living in. And I think a lot of folks are living in. And so for this example, our rhino hornbill flies to a couple baited perches, which really helps allow us to maintain more distance between him and certain trainers, which is just safer for all parties. And this helps us have the ability to have multiple folks, especially folks who don't have the reinforcement history, don't have the experience working with a massive hornbill that can very easily hurt you if you make a wrong move or do something that does, he doesn't like. Um, this gives us the ability to keep folks working with this bird, building the reinforcement history, building the relationship. We don't rely on baiting for all of our cues with him. He's got quite a few different flights that he does that are cued with hand cues or by physically tapping on a perch to ask him to come to point A or point B, and then it gets reinforced in a more traditional kind of method. But baiting certainly can help us in these situations where we need to create more distance and gives gives our trainers a chance to work with them. In that situation, you're giving the animal what they need. And overall, I would say that you're increasing this animal's welfare and well-being because you're still allowing it this animal to interact and do all of these natural purposeful behaviors that are good for his mental and physical stimulation. So I think that is a amazing example that I never would have thought about before now, which I think is a really cool thing that happens on the podcast all the time to me. <laughs> it's funny. Cause I think a lot of things that we do as trainers and this goes all ways, right. Is like, this is very normal for us. And you do so many things, Shane, that are so normal to you that I'm always like, what? I'm so amazed and like, well, duh, that makes so much sense. Um, and that's why I love getting to talk to people like you who are, you know, just normal people. And we're learning so much from each other, which is awesome. Yeah, which was what one of the goals of this podcast is. And I mean, we already talked about the conference. Like, that's one of my favorite parts about the conference is there's so many different people and you just someone saying something a certain way makes it click for you, which is so cool. Very valuable. Okay. So the other example I have for me, baiting can be particularly helpful when you're teaching a shifting behavior alone, when you don't have somebody else to help you, right? So if you're working with a skunk that you want to shift outside, but you don't have a second person to stand outside and cue the skunk to call 
to, to come to them using a target. All of our skunks at the National Zoo are target trained. I can't, I'm fast, but I'm not fast enough to run 30 feet in two seconds. So I can call the skunk you, out You can there. do it in three though, right? Three seconds, yes. Two yeah, is just I thought so. you know, too much of a stretch. And certainly, this is not to say that there are not other strategies that you can employ. However, baiting in a really visible location can be the start of the behavior. And we could pair that with a verbal cue. And then we can start fading the baiting out pretty quickly by moving the reinforcement to a less visible place, but still using that verbal cue. And then you just finish fading and approximating all the way out to the point where I can cue the behavior, I can close the shift door, and then I can hustle my fat butt outside and deliver reinforcement to the animal and the behavior is solid. And I can leave the shift door open, I can close the shift door, I can do it, take 10 seconds to walk outside, it doesn't matter, the behavior is solid and the behavior is reinforced and then the animal is consistent. Uh, you can also just place the reinforcement in a spot outside. We do this for our silvery cheech hornbill. A lot of our staff work with her, protected contact. That's the relationship that they have with her. She has a bowl in her outdoor run, so we can go place reinforcement out in it, but she can't see the reinforcement until she gets all the way out and is on top of the bowl, basically. So the reinforcement is very much contingent on the behavior, and she's not relying on seeing the reinforcement to complete the behavior. And we vary the amount of reinforcement and the type of reinforcement outside every day, just so that it's still novel to her. But the way that I built that behavior, oh, I just held the bowl out in front of her outside. And then I started moving that back, back, back. And then I started not putting food in it until she came all the way over to it. And that's the way we could safely deliver the reinforcement to her, but use baiting to kind of build that behavior. And to go a little bit nerdy here, because I, we weren't plan planning about talking this, but I was just thinking that you've kind of, it's one of the, hold on, let me start. I think one of the things with baiting is that this hornbill, it sounds like it has this very clear that it knows like, oh, yep, go to my bowl. Like the bowl is almost like the station, right? They go to the station and they get their food. However, one of problem, I'm just correct me if I'm, wrong one of a potential challenge could be that today the hornbill decided to walk like fly to the ground walk all around did a loop-de-loop sunbathed and then went up to the bowl and if you don't have access to go in and change it the animal is still then getting that food item for doing what is normally not the right criteria yes and so that's like a potential pitfall of baiting all the time right and so the way that we can fade out the baiting is by cueing the behavior if the behavior is completed properly properly being the way that we want right properly for an animal is whatever they want um, but if the behavior is finished according to the criteria that we have set then we can walk outside and plop the grapes out in her bowl so we don't rely on the baiting because, like you said, a pitfall there is, well, she does something else but still gets reinforced for it and then learns a completely novel behavior that we really don't need her to know or want her to know, especially associated with Q out. So fading it, like you pointed out, Shane, is just like the, the most important point, right? If you're utilizing a baiting strategy is like get rid of that as soon as you can so that you're not relying on it long-term. 
Yes. And there are, like we said, those are two great examples. I don't have necessarily a couple of actual examples, but I do want to talk about some other instances. Like one thing I think about is timing. Sometimes if, especially when it comes to medical cooperative care behaviors, if that behavior is not already in an animal's repertoire, sometimes if this is better for the animal, baiting might be something you do. Like I'm I don't know this, but I'm just using the example of the cod leopard getting ultrasound. If this is something that is very urgent that this animal gets an ultrasound, you using baiting to get them to that position might be the correct way to go because it's important that they get that ultrasound done or whatever that behavior is. And another one that I have an example of baiting was if you were trying to teach an animal to get to a location that you physically can't go to, or you can't give them any information because it's farther away. It's deeper into their habitat. You know, there's tons of different things you could do. You could train an animal to always go and target on a laser pointer, and you could then put the laser pointer way at the back of their habitat. Or the example that I have is when I was working with sea lions, we had three rocks in the middle of our pool. And so the way that the animals were trained to go onto the rocks was when they were in front of you, watching you, throwing fish onto the rock. So they would go and swim and get onto the rock. Like I said, tons of us have, could have done the laser pointer thing, would have been pretty cool. But I will say that that strategy ended up working a lot faster, really well. And then these animals had these other behaviors, other places to go. And that example was really cool because some of the animals didn't really explore the rocks, but once they were doing that actively in training session, getting reinforcement on there, then they were more likely to go and explore it, to check it out. Like sometimes there'd be enrichment on there, all those kind of things. So there definitely are examples where baiting is important. And that example I just said, pretty quickly you're able to fade out that bait and change that into communication cues to behavior and stuff. But some really cool examples. Another really great use of baiting is when you have a really young animal or a novice learner that doesn't have a strong reinforcement history. And, you know, if you have a, a neonate that you're trying to get to come off of its mom and onto a scale or into an area where you can get a good look at it, baiting can be a really smart and easy strategy to make that happen quickly, especially in terms of needing to get a weight on a really young baby that you really want to know, like, is everything okay? Is everything good? Or if you have a sick animal, baiting can be a, a, an excellent strategy. Even if the animal has a learned behavior, an established behavior, baiting could be a really helpful tool to just get the job done when you need to. And I think that's kind of one of the things that I tell my team and, and my team tells me is, you know, we don't have to be perfect by the book trainers every single day, especially when it comes to an animal's well-being. The animal being okay is the the most important thing at the end of the day. And baiting is certainly not a harmful strategy when used with consideration for the situation that you're in, right? And you just brought up something that we are going to go down a little bit of a rabbit hole that we weren't planning on of talking about how baiting can be used for behaviors that are learned already, but maybe there's a situation where you have competing reinforcers that maybe you need to take a step back and give the animal a little bit more. I'm saying like, hey, like it is, I'm going to show you that this is going to be worth you leaving your competing reinforcers. A great example I can think of is 
I think it was episode six on the podcast with about antecedents with Chris Jenkins that was talking about how at the time with the sea lions, it was the coldest Christmas Eve that Ohio had had in years. And it was literally like the second that water, the fish touched like the air, it froze. And we had a sea Uh lion that he did not want to walk on the ice. He came out for a second and went, nope, this is not for me. And we had to take hot buckets of water and melt all the ice. But even then, he had that current learning history of if I go on land, that was uncomfortable. I didn't want that. And we ended up using a baiting strategy of showing him all the fish, all the squid, all the stuff that he wanted for him to come inside. And it was because it was so important for him because it was so cold that we wanted to make sure that he had at least access because where he was, he didn't have indoor outdoor access. So we want to give him a place where he could be able to self-regulate and choose. So I think that is another great thing that you just brought up that a sick animal or something like that, sometimes baiting is necessary if it is what is in the best interest of that animal physically, mentally, et cetera. Yeah. I think another example real quick is like our, the COVID vaccines for a lot of our carnivores here, we were on a waiting list for them. So our vets had no idea when they were coming until they came. And then it was like, okay, you got to pony up and let's get this done. And so the first round went great. All of our animals were prepared, but the second round, two and a half, three weeks later, you know, typically our animals get a knockdown or some kind of injection, you know, we do our annual vaccines, and then they have a ton of time to recover from that really not fun experience, because I can approximate all the way up to putting an actual needle in an animal, I can approximate the sting and the after effects of an actual drug going into them, right? Um, That's much more difficult to, to get them experienced with or get them used to. So this time around, the clotted leopards were fine because they have a pretty strong reinforcement history with the behavior of voluntary injections. These caracals, this was their first major voluntary injection and the COVID vaccine stung. They, they both reacted to it when we first did it. And then we were doing shows. I couldn't say, Hey, we can't have caracals and shows for three weeks because we need to, you know, rebuild this behavior it was like, well, I got to use what little reinforcement I have left over to be able to do some vaccine practice. And then when the second round came around, it was like, well, girl, we're using some baiting because I got to get this vaccine in these cats. I have a 24-hour window once the vaccine vials are open and the vets have a limited amount of time to do this and they need this dose. And we use baiting and I am very proud to say that it worked. And you know, now I have plenty of time to rebuild the behavior and actually get it back on the cues that I want it to be and not on baiting. But it's a great strategy and a great tool to use when you need it. I know that's why Jake had some great examples. And so when I was saying what, who wants to do this podcast, Jake was like, I want to do baiting. And I'm glad that I see why you said that now, because you've got some really great examples. I I certainly like to use it as a tool. I am not afraid of it. That's going to be the title's episode, baiting. Jake's not afraid of it. (laughs) Perfect. And neither should you be. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) So we kind of talked about this a little bit, but we're going to dive deeper into this. So we've decided that the best option is to implement a baiting strategy. However, 
That isn't the end goal. The end goal is to move away from that baiting strategy. So in the future, through the learning process, we can give the animal clear communication that when whatever that target behavior is done, reinforcement will then follow it. So our reinforcement then is falling into the consequences of the behavior. So how can we use baiting, Jake, and then quickly move away from that strategy? You've talked about examples that you've done in those practical things, but how could, if someone's asking that question, how could you help them with whatever animal they are doing this with? So I think having an established bridge is, is really key there to help just kind of bridge the gap literally and figuratively, et cetera, from baiting to a learned behavior. And so bridging and reinforcing right after the bait to pair the behavior with reinforcement. So you, if when you look at it, you, it practically, it, it almost looks like the animal is getting double reinforced, right? It, it looks like, oh, well, he already got his treat and now he's getting another one. But the purpose of that is you're trying to bridge when the behavior is occurring and then reinforce again. And effectively, you're reinforcing really the behavior at that point. The first reinforcement was a decoy, right? It's a, it's a, a lure, it's a it's a, a great strategy to get the animal to move to where you want it to move or do what you want it to do, but then you're wanting to actually reinforce the behavior overall and so bridging and reinforcing right after the bait to pair the behavior with the reinforcement is the best strategy that I've found to do it. And like you said at the very beginning, having that clear understanding of the bridge is so important because the bridge is a stimulus that signals to the animal that reinforcement is coming. So for them, they are baited to a place, but then they hear that bridge, which they have so much history with, the animals start to think like, wait, okay, something's happening here. <laughs> I'm getting excited, all that kind of stuff. So that is exactly what I would say as well, and really well said. So now that we've gone through all of that, Jake, we've really dove into baiting and what situations may call for that, baiting it out. Jake, can you walk us through an example of baiting and then how in the uh, throughout the process that baiting was faded into another strategy or final behavior? Sure. So I work with a couple of caracals. Samir is the one that I have the like kind of example for. We trained a cue to walk in the direction that we point first by throwing food down on the ground in that direction, right? And then pointing at it and in that general direction while that was happening. We kind of try to pair everything together right at the, at the start. Once the cat was reliably going for the food, we were able to just start fading out the tossing until the tossing was occurring after the point, the, the, the physical point, our new cue and after the cat started walking in that direction that we wanted and then we're able to increase the duration by slowly approximating to larger amounts of time in between the cue and the reinforcement so then we have a cat that will walk where he's pointed and then can be reinforced after he started walking practically for me and i think for a lot of folks like yes i easily could have used a target and done the same thing and maybe learning would have occurred quicker in theory, maybe in practice too. For me, I got my hands full. Okay. I'm busy. I am trying to stay alive, aka not fall flat on my face while this animal that's much faster than me, much more graceful than I am, is moving and grooving. And I'm trying to deliver reinforcement quickly 
and deliver clear communication to him. I have a really hard time holding a cat on a leash in one hand, holding a target in the other hand, holding a clicker in that same hand, and then also dropping the target and the clicker to deliver reinforcement. Tons of solutions for this. A, Jake, get better. B, Jake, ask a coworker for help and have two people working him. Practically, I think for me, for a lot of other folks, like we don't always have extra staff to do this. We don't always have the opportunity to do to to have multiple bodies working this cat. Oftentimes when we're working our caracals, one person is talking to the guests, the other person's working the cat. And so for me, the best strategy was just baiting, fading the bait out, and then using, relying on the cue that we had established, which is the point to get the cat to walk in the direction we're asking. I think that was honestly a perfect example to wrap up everything that we just talked about because you threw in some of those other, you know, you went through your thought process. I think that's what's really cool for people to think that's the thought process of then coming to the conclusion that baiting in that moment and with this animal, and that's, I think, key. This is going to be dependent on the animal, on the situation. Like you said, something I didn't think about until you started saying it, this animal is so fast. So that was a way that you could give that clear communication to almost like slow down a little bit and pay attention and watch and all those things. So I think that was really cool. Thank you. And again, like people can do it in thousands of ways, right? So I'm not saying, well, my way is the best way. I'm just saying for me, this is what worked. I I love it. And that's training is not necessarily black and white and there's tons of different ways to do it. So, and that's why we're having fun in the podcast. Yeah. Perfect. All right. So to end this episode, we kind of wanted to give a little bit of a scenario and talk through it a little bit. So here's the scenario. An animal is shifting from one area to another. You, so say, Jake, you are the B location receiving the animal. Recently, this animal has been moving slowly while shifting, not as engaged, looking at the other trainers or looking around, not focusing forward. And also in this scenario, this is a trained behavior. This animal knows this shifting behavior it has reinforcement history. It's It does it every day. Well, today, even recently, this animal has been doing what I said, but today the animal leaves immediately when they are sent. They're moving quickly. They're really focused and engaged at the trainer that they are going to. So halfway to you, you bridge their pace and attention during the shift, and you throw a food item another 10 feet in front of them. Say it's far away, or you do it intentionally. And anyways, regardless, you've bridged and then you throw a food item reinforcer in front of them so that they have to continue moving towards you to get that reinforcer. After consuming the food reinforcer, the animal continues on with their ship shift. The animal continues on with their shift, finishes the behavior. Was that baiting? Oh gosh. Okay. So Shane, we like talked about this briefly, but there's like baiting, which is the reinforcer is kind of in the antecedents, like before the behavior occurs, the reinforcer is present and visible or smellable. Reinforcement placement, which is kind of what you're talking about here, right? Is the reinforcement is a consequence to a behavior that's already occurring. For me, reinforcement placement is almost like, a baiting strategy to reinforce a behavior that's already trained. And I'm not an expert on this, obviously, but I, I think it's a great tool to use. 
but I think like the reinforcement is definitely a consequence of the behavior, but the placement of the reinforcement is still cueing or encouraging or communicating to the animal that receiving that reinforcement is contingent on the animal continuing moving to receive it. And the way we're looking at it, it's really hard for me to say, I don't know. And that's why we wanted to continue to talk about this because I I posed this and Jake and I have had, not through Zoom, through texting and email, we've had this kind of cool discussion. So I wanted to keep it in because like you said, this is us as humans talking about it and having different opinions. And what I, when I was thinking about this example in our discussion was really came to it's all dependent on the animal. Like what is the animal showing us? Like for me, if this animal, they get the reinforcement, they come and eat it and they continue on, they do it. Great, great communication. Reinforcement placement can be a really great tool that we can help set the animal up for their next, you know, set the antecedents up for the next part of what they're about to do. But I think in this situation, if we threw the food, they were tentative to come towards it. So maybe they're like this situation, if this the first half of the shift, they do faster. They're more comfortable in that space, which looks like them moving forward. But then they get to a certain point in this shift process where generally they slow down. Maybe they're an animal that has body language cues, hair raises, ears go down, all those things where they're not as comfortable and you throw that food reinforcer in that area. I think that's looking at it a little bit differently and then you're like you're saying jake that is kind of luring them to a place where they're showing you that they necessarily weren't maybe weren't going to choose on their own versus a scenario where an animal comes freely they get it they move on and all that kind of stuff so that's why i think this is a really cool example and i think something that we can do and use but also like you said we should be cognizant of what we are doing and asking the animal to do at all times yeah, I think, uh, I guess another thought just popped into my head, Shane. I love I, it. <laughs> I kind of do this with Samir, the caracal, when I'm working him on stage. He has tremendous amount of reinforcement history going from this little stump to this big stump. He gets all of his high value rewards on the big stump because he's we're tossing food at him so he can show off how he can swat at food. I remember that. It's very cool. It's cool. It's like, it's good for him. It's it's whatever. It's It's something. On when I am ready to leave the stage with him, which changes every day, it's never a set kind of run out on stage. It's kind of like dependent on him, dependent on the crowd, dependent on me. I will cue him to sit on his small stump. And because he has such a strong reinforcement history going to the big stump, I will often toss my reinforcement in the opposite direction to kind of like be like, okay, great sit, great job now here's your food. And then that really helps me be better able to cue him to leave the stage in a much more clear way where he doesn't have to choose between going to this place that he really likes and going somewhere where he knows he's going to get reinforced, but he's going to get less reinforcement or lower value reinforcers sometimes rather than on stage because he always gets chicken on stage. He sometimes gets chicken backstage because that's what his diet looks like. Um, So all that to say, just kind of like an interesting, like, oh, I have to like think more about that. Yeah, I think I think what you just said is a perfect example. That's not baiting. You you bridged, you gave them that information, and then the reinforcement, you placed it in a position to set that animal up to succeed. 
right? Like you set up the antecedents mm. for that next part of this whole entire contingency that Samir is going through while he's on stage, going out, coming out, doing all the awesome things, going back. You're just setting that up, in my opinion, to succeed and to allow him to continue to be as easily reinforced for his next behavior as possible. So I love it. Thank you for saying the same mind, things. Mind boggling. Yes. It's very cool. Very cool. Well, that was an amazing discussion about baiting. And I can tell you, Jake, that this is one of those podcasts where I felt like we had a template. We had where we were going and our, this conversation was so fluid that we went to a lot of other places that we weren't thinking of, but I think will be really cool learning and connectable to a lot of people. But let's go and end like we always do with our training tale. So Jake, can you give us a fun, interesting training story? Yeah. So I love talking about our Kookaburra Adelaide at the National Zoo. She came to us pretty neophobic. She went through the, you know, really routine process of being held in holding for 30 days, basically solitary because we had to put her through quarantine. And that's a really important safety protocol, but we're learning more and more these days that that can be really damaging to an animal that already has neophobia or other, you know, kind of abnormalities. So this bird came to us and she was not a fan of people. She was not a fan of moving around near us. It took a ton, a ton, a ton of time to build really foundational behaviors like coming to a scale, going to a crate, coming to a hand. And um, lo and behold, the trick with Adelaide was, you know, just continuing being super consistent with her and then moving her into an environment where she felt like she had more control. And she did because she was able to move further away from people. She was able to move further away from stimuli she didn't like. And it cut out a lot of the novel stimuli that changed every day. And that was really helpful to her. And now she's free flying in our shows and she has a really, what I consider a really fun behavior. She comes out from her house and flies around the amphitheater. She chooses a different path every time she comes out. She zips around like a little bullet through the air. And this year we kind of added a fun twist and we have a little helmet that my co-host Cam wears. And she, we put a little piece of food baiting Ooh, look at that on the full helmet, circle. full circle. <laughs> but the purpose of this is not because we want Adelaide to land on the helmet. We want her to fly by and snatch the food off the helmet. And that is something that I really couldn't do without baiting the helmet um, because I want her to grab the food because we talk about how kookaburras in the wild will take food from other birds. We talk about how like I'm brave, but I'm not brave enough to put food in my mouth for Adelaide to come steal but I offer up Cam's very delicate head as an alternative. And the guests really get a kick out of it. It shows off Adelie's agility. It's a great way to kind of show off her natural abilities without, you know, zoonotic disease risk. And so um, I just love free-flying our kookaburra. And I really hope, you know, if y'all come to the 2024 conference in Nashville, Tennessee, you can learn all about the AVMA and all about our, you know, kind of, fun times that we have and our awesome training that we get to to share with everybody but you can see adelaide the kookaburra in our shows <laughs> and full circle and you basically ended the podcast for me so thank you for Ooh, that yay 
<laughs> but before you go, Jake, if anyone has any questions for you or would like more information, how can people reach you? Sure. So you can reach me at the email first, F-I-R-S-T-V-P at theabma.org. If you message the ABMA on any of our social media platforms, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, you'll find me and I can answer you there too. There you go. Yeah. Every time you ask a question about the podcast, it's actually Jake. And he normally (laughs) texts me and goes, hey, I'm going to respond this way. Is that good? Or like, hey, can you respond to this? So it is Jake. You now know the man behind the curtain. (laughs) Perfect. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jake. Thank you, Shane. This was so fun. Thank you for everything that you're doing for the ABMA. I think it's fantastic. And you too. And that concludes today's episode focusing on baiting. This, of course, just scratches the surface. So if you have any questions at all, please reach out to any of the ABMA social channels, which will actually be Jake responding to that, or by emailing abc at theabma.org. We'd love to hear from you. This podcast is truly made for you. So if you have any questions or topics that you would like covered, please let us know. A big shout out to all the people that have already reached out, giving us feedback and ideas for future episodes. And just know that those are all in the works. And once again, a special thank you to Jake for joining us today. James McCaleb for our theme song, Ayla on the Beat, sung by the ever-talented Ayla the Sea Lion. All of our ABMA members and to you for listening and joining in on the Behavior Conversation. If you aren't already a member, consider joining the ABMA by visiting theabma.org as we all strive to better the lives of animals around the world. Be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on and join us next week on Animal Behavior Conversations as we start a two-part series focusing on enrichment. In the meantime, thanks for joining us and happy training. All right. Um, we'll just start right here and then I'll ask you about yourself. All right. Actually starting now. So over the fat, over the fast few. Oh my gosh. Oh, we should have pretended like we still weren't. Okay. Right, right, right. Take two.